Good evening. If you please take your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. This will be our, our last sermon in 1 John. These are the last verses of the book. 1 John chapter 5, 18 to 21 is our scripture text this evening. 1 John chapter 5, 18 through 21. This is God's word. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you first for our time in this book, First John. I pray that you will use all that we have learned up until this point and including this evening for the purposes of the book, that we would have joy, that we would know you, and that we would know that we know you, that we know that we have eternal life. Lord, I pray that you will help us as we conclude this book to remember the things we have learned, to see the things that are in the text this evening that sum up so well some of the main points of this book. I pray that you'll press them into our hearts and that we would apply them in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we see, the book of 1 John is concluded uh, with these verses. And in a brilliant way, these verses largely sum up some of the main points of the book of 1 John. You'll recall that this book was written to combat false teachers, uh, early Gnostic teachers who had infiltrated the church that John is writing to and were teaching, uh, teaching false doctrine concerning Jesus, and that those false teachers then left the church themselves. Uh, these early Gnostics taught, you recall, that matter, that the physical world was bad, and therefore that God would never dirty himself by becoming a human being. Um, if therefore, that Jesus could not have come in the flesh. They taught, therefore, that Jesus was not truly God and truly man in one person. They taught that Jesus was not really the Christ, or in other words, the Messiah. They, they saw a distinction between the person of Jesus, who was just a man, and then the Christ, which was this spirit that rested on the man Jesus from his baptism to right up until he was, right before he was crucified. So in their view, Jesus was not the Christ. The Christ just inhabited Jesus for a time, and John refuted that in the book. They taught as well that they were the only ones who were privy to such special knowledge about the Christ and about God, and that they claimed to have attained this sort of secret uh, knowledge they had some special status, and nobody out of their elite group was able to truly understand this. So all of these teachings, uh, along with their claims to this secret knowledge of these teachings, no doubt disrupted and disturbed the Christians who were left in that church after these guys came in, taught all of this stuff, and then went out, 
the, the Christians that John was writing to were very upset, very doubtful and concerned. Were the Gnostics right? Did they really have a, a secret knowledge of who Jesus really was that we're missing out on? See, John didn't want these Christian people to lack assurance and to doubt. So he wrote this letter to combat the Gnostics' false teachings and offer genuine tests for whether or not you're a real Christian. You'll recall one of the main purpose statements of the book of 1 John, 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the purposes of this book is, to, is for us to have assurance of salvation. John gives instructions so that we may gain assur- assurance of salvation. As well, in addition to that, he also offered serious warnings against the world and against its lies. So in the closing verses of this letter that we have here this evening, John is really summarizing and repeating some of these main points that he had covered throughout the book. The way he does this is that he lists off three doctrinal statements that he proceeds with the words, we know, and then he offers a warning. We know, they're statements of fact, they're statements of truth, and then to close the book out, those, those final, uh, that final verse, those final words, is one final admonition, one more warning. So having laid down that outline, let's look at the first of the three we know doctrinal statements. So look at verse 18. We know that no one who was born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So here's our first we know doctrinal statement. Not surprisingly, John makes a statement about being a true born-again believer. We've seen this many times before in the book. Much of the book has been distinguishing between fake believers, like those, false, uh, those Gnostic false teachers, and true believers, making a distinction between the two. John sums up that distinction between true believers and false believers that he has made before. The true born-again believer, he says, does not sin. And we've seen that phrase before. What he means is does not keep on sinning. He doesn't make a practice of sinning. His lifestyle is no longer one of sinning. So John is saying that again here. The born-again person does not keep on in a lifestyle of sin. In other words, a true born-again believer is a changed person. And man, we've seen this so many times in the book of 1 John. For example, 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him sins, or keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So we've seen it there. 1 John 3, 8 to 10, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So the teachings that was taught in chapter 3 is the same thing here. The true born-again believer doesn't make a practice of sin as his lifestyle anymore. He's been changed, and now he practices righteousness as a lifestyle. Is he perfect? No, but he's repentant of his sin, and he lives a lifestyle of righteousness. He has a new heart with new desires. 
that desires to keep God's commandments. Again, not perfectly, but as a lifestyle. The believer wants to obey God. The unbeliever does not want to obey God. John has shown many times throughout the book that obedience to God is a mark, an evidence, that one is truly born again. And that idea is repeated here in chapter 5. No one born of God keeps on sinning in that sinful lifestyle. No one born of God remains unchanged. A true believer obeys God because God has given him a desire to obey. You recall Ezekiel 36, 27. God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the result of the Holy Spirit indwelling a person, obedience to God. So John sums up a test to determine if you're born again, namely that if you keep on practicing sin as a lifestyle, you're not born again. That's his point. There is no possibility of having come to know the true Jesus Christ and yet remain unchanged. That's been a running theme in the book. As for those who are born again, John adds great words of assurance here in the second half of verse 18. Look at that. So he says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Since those who are born again are God's people whom he has saved, whom he has given a new heart, whom he has given new life, God the Son keeps that person, that saved person, forever. He is eternally secure in the love of Jesus. You remember what Jesus himself said, John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, everyone who the Father has given to me, I will lose none of them. That's what John's saying here. God keeps him. That, the one who was born of God, that's referring to Jesus, keeps the saved person. It's the Father's will that Jesus lose none of those people that he has come to save. And Jesus will never and has never failed at that mission. Jesus keeps his people. So those who are truly born again will not, cannot become unborn again. The saved cannot become unsaved. It's impossible. Those who possess eternal life possess life eternally, not temporarily. Additionally, John adds right after that, that the evil one does not touch the saved person. In other words, Satan cannot pull us back into his own kingdom. He can't bring us back into his family. Once we have God as our father, we will never have Satan as our father again. He cannot touch us. He can tempt us, but he cannot make us do anything. Satan cannot compel you or force you to sin. We cannot be possessed by demons. We can be tempted, we can be oppressed, but we cannot be compelled or forced by Satan to do anything. Satan, no doubt, is a powerful enemy, a crafty tempter, but those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit can resist the devil. Remember what James said, James 4, 7? Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and what? He'll flee from you. He will flee from you. Because Satan has no forceful power to make us sin, we can always resist Satan by the power of the Holy Spirit. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, John said. So the point, the first point, is this. Those who are, who are born of God do not continue in a path of life that follows Satan. And they will never ultimately return to that way of life because God will keep them. 
So the first we know statement is that those who are born of God are changed by God to stop living habitual lives of sin. And those who are born of God will never lose their salvation or go back to having Satan as their father. Again, this is a running theme in the book of John, 1 John, and it helps us gain assurance since we know that a true believer has a changed heart that follows God. And it also shows us that if we are a true believer, we'll never lose our salvation because God will keep us. Okay, so let's look at now the second we know doctrinal statement. That's in verse 19, 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is somewhat similar to the first we know statement. John teaches us on the distinction between Christians and the world. Christians are God's adopted children. The world are Satan's children. There's a big distinction there. We've seen it before. It's been taught throughout the book. We saw this distinction in 1 John 3.10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. There's a sharp distinction, a sharp contrast between the children of God and the children of Satan. Additionally, in the book of 1 John, John taught against uh, Christians acting like the unbelieving world. And he marked out a distinction between what the world lives for and what Christians live for. This is a remarkable, this is one of the texts that sticks out to me the most in 1 John, having gone through it. Remarkable text where, where John can summarize everything that the world lives for in three points. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. It says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, for all, that, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The lust, or the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those three things are what the world lives for. That is worldliness. The desire to indulge, the desire to possess, the desire to impress. They, the, they live for, for pleasure, for profit, and for pride. Those are the idols. Those are the three main idols of the world. Instead of living for God, they live for themselves, for those things. And those are the defining differences between the child of God and the child of Satan. What do you live for? What do you live for? He says in this verse, Christians are of God. They live for God. They love God. They obey God. Again, not perfectly, but as a lifestyle. And the world is just the opposite. They live for themselves and not for God. They do not obey God and have no genuine interest in doing so. In point of fact, what? They live for Satan. Remember Jesus taught this in John's gospel, John 8, 44. He said to unbelieving Jews, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Your will is to do the desires of your father. You notice that? Unbelievers want to do what Satan wants them to do. Satan and unbelievers, they're in agreement. Satan's their father, their master. That's what John is saying here in 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole unbelieving world is under Satan. You remember, Satan is called the, the lowercase g, God of this world. The God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, remember this? And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 
in whose case the God of this world, lowercase g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're all under the power of the evil one, of Satan. He's the lowercase g, God of the world, because they follow him. He's their master, their father. It's who they listen to, and their will is to do his desires. And Satan's, Satan's shiny bait that he puts in front of the world are those idols, the false gods of indulgence, possessions, and pride. These, the world does not live for the real Jesus. They live for idols. Any, any so-called Jesus that the world loves is a so-called Jesus that approves of those idols. And the real Jesus does not approve of those idols of indulgence and of, possess, of, of idolatrous possessiveness and of pride. The Christian lives for God. The Christian is of God. That is the true God, not idols. And it's a mark of being born again and aids us in assurance of salvation. The world lives for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. The Christian lives for God. Huge distinction between Christians and the world is the distinction between God's family and Satan's family, according to this verse. So we can see, am I born again? What am I living for? For the things of the world, for the things of God. Those who are born again are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So that's another test of being born again that, can, that will enable us to gain assurance of salvation to see how has God changed me. Those whose lives are controlled by idolatry are under the power of Satan, but those who have been freed from idolatry serve the true Jesus since they have been born again. Now, I use that phrase, the true Jesus, over and over again because that's one of John's emphasis, uh, emphases in this book. The true Jesus is of crucial importance. False Christians are going to claim to know a Jesus and follow him, but who this Jesus is is of the utmost importance. A false Jesus is just as much of an idol as the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So that brings us to the next we know statement, which deals with who Jesus truly is. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, 1 John 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, there's, there's three main points here about Jesus. These are great, okay? First, Jesus is the Son of God, and he has come into the world. It's super basic in Christian doctrine, but it's vitally important. Jesus is truly the Son of God, and he truly came and lived and died and rose again as a human being. Secondly, Jesus has given us understanding to know the Father, who is the true God. That's the second thing this teaches us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, John taught us that as well. He says, No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In other words, he's saying no one has seen God the Father, but God the Son has made the Father known to us. He has explained him to us. Jesus reveals the Father. So Jesus is the way 
to God the Father. That's what this is uh, teaching us. He gives us understanding to know the Father. We cannot know God the Father apart from knowing Jesus. That's, a, again, a theme in 1 John. 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. You cannot have the Father without the Son because Jesus has revealed God the Father to us. We only have access to the Father through the Son. Remember, Jesus himself said that. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We're also taught here that we are united to the Father, or we are in him, as, God, as John puts it in the passage. We're in him through his Son, Jesus Christ. So the only way to God the Father is through Jesus, and that's why he came, so that we may know the Father. And thirdly, we're told about Jesus, that Jesus is God, and that he is eternal life. And those are absolutely huge statements. This is one of the most direct statements concerning the deity of Jesus in the Bible. Now, of course, you recall John, in the opening verse of his gospel, gives an equally clear uh, statement of Jesus' deity when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, referring to Jesus. And here he says, when he says, this is the true God, he's referring to the, the words right before that, his son Jesus Christ. His son Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. The son of God, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. It's as plain as he can make it. So let's look at those statements a little closer for a minute. He is the true God, and he is eternal life. First, Jesus is the true God. Vitally important, because you recall the early Gnostic false teachers denied that the, that the man Jesus was truly God and truly man. They, they denied that Jesus was God. So John flat out says here that he is the true God, just as he did in the opening verse of the Gospel of John. Jesus is truly God and truly man, and, and the point is, if you get that wrong, you've got the wrong Jesus. That's, that's something that John's been teaching. If you, if you get that wrong, you've got the wrong Jesus. And everything falls apart from there. Because if you have the wrong Jesus, you don't have the Father either. Because you can't get to the Father through a fake Jesus. You have to have the real Jesus. So if you have the wrong Jesus, you don't have the Father. And if you don't have the Father, you don't have eternal life. It has to be the right Jesus. Why? You can't be saved by something that doesn't exist. Only the true Jesus can save. And a Jesus that is not God doesn't exist. There's only one true Jesus, and he is truly God and truly man. And then, as I just said, without Jesus, you can have no eternal life. Well, he says, Jesus is the true God, and he is eternal life. There's only one way to have eternal life, and that is to know the Father and the Son. This is what Jesus said, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, I've already said, the only way you can know the Father is if you know the Son. If you don't have the Son, you have no eternal life. If you have the Son, then you have the Father. If you have the Father, then you have the Son. They always go together. But you must go to the Father through the Son, through faith in Jesus. So without knowing Jesus, you will not have eternal life. You recall what Peter said in Acts 4, referring to Jesus. In fact, just by the way, John was there with Peter when he preached this. Acts 4.12. 
and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no salvation apart from this one person, Jesus. This is, that he is eternal life. He is the life. So John is saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is God come in the flesh, who has revealed the Father, and that eternal life is found only in knowing the Father through the Son. That's the point of verse 20 there. He's, a, he's talking about the real Jesus. He's defining who Jesus is. Anything else is a counterfeit and it can't save. This teaching of knowing the biblical Jesus, again, has been a theme throughout the book of 1 John. So John emphasizes it again here. And again, this helps us gain assurance of salvation. If you believe in a fake Jesus, you are not born again. But if you believe in the Jesus that John describes here, the biblical Jesus, that is an evidence that you are born again. If you deny the true Jesus, again, it shows you do not have the Father, you do not have eternal life. But if you receive the true Jesus, that's evidence that you are, in fact, born again. So those three things, those three we know statements in 18, 19, and 20, are the three doctrinal statements that John wants to lay out there at the end of this book, end of this letter, three things that largely sum up a lot of what he has said already. But then he throws in, in our final verse of 1 John, one last warning, one last admonition, one last command, and it's a very fitting one. The final word here, 1 John 5.21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, without having gone through this book, you know, verse by verse, as we have, this closing warning might seem to be a little bit out of the blue. But I hope that you can see it's actually very, very fitting to warn, against, uh, to warn us to guard against idols. One of the main issues of the book, as we just discussed, is to reject false Jesuses and to receive the true Jesus. And what are false Jesuses other than just idols? The church that John was writing to had been disrupted by false teachers who had accepted and taught a false Jesus. Their Jesus, again, was not truly God and truly man in one person. He was not God come in the flesh. Their Jesus was not the same as the Christ. They taught a false Jesus, an idol. And the church was left disrupted by their teaching. So John warns the Christians here he's, that he's writing to. They need to guard themselves from idols. They need to protect themselves from being taken in by false teachings about this Jesus that these people were pushing forward. And of course, First John itself, the letter itself, would prove to be a great weapon against false teachers who preach a fake Jesus. It was then, and it is even to this day, against groups who, who teach a fake Jesus. So although John's admonition here um, certainly applies to these issues of, of heresy and, and false Jesus is being preached, John's admonitions to guard against idols really cover much of the book of First John. They guard, yes, we need to guard against a Jesus who is not truly God and truly man, but it goes even beyond that. We also must guard against a so-called Jesus that doesn't change people and make them born again. That's one of the issues of the book too, isn't it? When you're saved, when you're born again, you are radically changed. And a Jesus who doesn't radically change you is not the real Jesus. 
the false Jesus of the Gnostics did not bring about change in the Gnostics. They lived sinful lifestyles, which is why John keeps repeating that. No, you will be changed if you're saved. He emphasized the born-again person will be brought out of sin because that's what the real Jesus does. Remember 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. You can't, it's impossible to live in a sinful lifestyle, habitually sinful lifestyle, if you're born again, because God has put his life into you. The real Jesus does that. Fake Jesuses do nothing. They will not change you. So guard yourselves from fake Jesuses that can't change you. Guard yourselves from things that call themselves Christianity, but are unable and can never affect any moral change in a person. Because a true Jesus produces righteousness in a person. The true Jesus bears fruit in a person. And false idols cannot do that. They can't do anything at all. Likewise, in keeping with John's teaching, a Jesus that does not call you out of the world and out of worldliness is not the real Jesus either. That's another idol. Guard yourself from a so-called Jesus that doesn't call you out of worldliness. If your Jesus approves of your idolatrous desires for pleasure, profit, and pride, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not the real Jesus. That's an idol. See, again, the world's desires, remember those? They're simply idols. They live for false gods. It's like they make these little idols, these little, little statues, these little idols in their lives, little mud idols. They take this mud and they smush it together and make a little thing, right? A little partying, a little sports cars, a little showing off on social media. We'll get that little idol up there. They turn their back, it topples over. What I need is a little bit more mud. Let me scoop that up and get it a little bit bigger, a little more sturdy. So a little more, a little more sex, a little bit more money, a little bit of getting people to, love, to want my life more. And they turn, boom, it topples over. A little bit more mud. I need a little bit more of this stuff to prop it up, prop it up, prop Boom, prop it up, boom. Prop it up until it falls on them and crushes them. That's the way of the world in reality. A, a stupid attempt to find fulfillment in things that cannot and will never fulfill. An attempt to replace the true Jesus with stuff, with these things, these desires. Unfortunately, these desires, these little mud idols, the desire to indulge and possess and to impress people, very enticing, not only to the world, but to Christians as well. So God says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Remember an idol? An idol is anything you love more than God, fear more than God, value more than God, or serve more than God. And the world is full of shiny idols. They'll try to get you to allow them to take the place of the true Jesus. He says, guard yourselves from them. See, idols are lies. You think, as long as I keep putting more of this, it'll finally work somehow. And every time it topples over, every time it falls, and the bigger it gets, the harder it falls. Idols are lies. They tell you that they'll be good gods. They'll make good gods, but they never, ever do. Little mud idols that topple over the minute you set them up 
and adding more mud just makes that fall greater and the crush a deeper blow. They cannot fulfill you. They cannot save you. They cannot give you wisdom to live your life. They cannot bring you peace. They cannot bring you joy. And I guarantee you, they will tell you, they can do all of those things and more. But the way you guard yourself against those is you point out those are all lies. Those things, salvation, wisdom, peace, joy, they only come from one person. They only come from one source, from the living and true God. And they're not found anywhere else. See, the true Jesus, the real Jesus, he takes you out of worldliness and shows you the glory of living for the true God. Shows you the wisdom of forsaking foolish idols. You know, before we were saved, we were described this way in Galatians 4.8. He says, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those, to those which by nature are no gods. In other words, you were slaves to idols, things that are no gods of, at all. When you didn't know God, you were a slave to these false things. But what God has done is he's taken us out of slavery to those things and has made us his sons. I think uh, Joel Beakey describes this reality of being taken out of the world and the idols of the world and now living for God. He describes it well and describes it this way, and I quote him. He said, So if you've been born of God, you belong to God. At one time you were in the world and under the sway of the wicked one, but now you belong to the Lord. You have a different father, God, a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, a different influence, the Holy Spirit, and a new standard, the word of God. You belong to a new family, the church of God, and you live with a new purpose, the glory of God. Since you now belong to God, you must live like it. You must not live like those in the world because you are no longer of the world. End quote. So in closing, it struck me that in many ways, the book of 1 John is summed up in this command. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Much of what he taught about falls under the category of refusing idolatry. Guard yourselves from false teachers who, who teach a fake Jesus. It's an idol. Guard yourselves from worldliness. They all live for idols. Believe in the true Jesus. Reject false ones. Believe in, in the evidences that God has made you born again and changed your life. Believe the truth. Reject the lies. Guard yourselves from idols. Believe and know that you have eternal life in the real and true Jesus. So I hope that through this study in 1 John, you have either gained an assurance of salvation or have grown an assurance of salvation. If you haven't, I encourage you, try again. Try again. Because you need to have assurance of salvation. And you can have assurance of salvation. Because that's the purpose of the book. Remember 1 John 5, 13. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's not for some elite class of Christians. That's for you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So may God bless you with that knowledge. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this great book. 
It's so, so helpful. Thank you for your kindness and your love for us, that you would want us to know, that you would command us to know that we have eternal life. Lord, we thank you for eternal life in Jesus, and I pray that you would just bear all the evidences of being born again so clearly in all of us, that we would know and we would grow in assurance of salvation. Lord, I pray that you will impress upon us all the things that we have learned from this book in the last year plus. I ask this in Jesus' name.